Most of it made no sense to me. It was in two languages, and I understood neither of them. There was one word I did recognise, a word no restaurant ever bothered to translate because the original French did the job. Escargot. I'd first eaten snails in garlic butter at home in northwest London, where my mother prepared them from a do-it-yourself pack sold in the local supermarket. They came in a transparent plastic tube. At the bottom was a can of the naked snails, which looked like big fat commas when they were pulled from the brine and laid out to dry. Stacked above them in the tube were the creamy coloured shells, patterned with swirls of brown and grey. Laboriously, my mother poked the snails into the shells. She backfilled them with garlic and parsley butter and then grilled them. They were cooked often in our house in the 1970s, mostly as dinner party food, when the kids were not there. But sometimes we got to eat them too, and I loved the hot, salty, garlicky melted butter and the dark, rubbery prey that bathed in it. Now I was in Switzerland, and having been surprised to discover that skiing was not a sport for an overweight boy with weak ankles and fallen arches, I was horribly homesick. With the twisted logic of the eleven-year-old, I concluded that eating something French would make me feel far better about not being in Britain. That evening, after we'd been served dinner at our hotel, a grey soup of some kind, some greyer meat and vegetables, I slipped away in search of Technicolor. I cannot imagine what the staff made of the prepubescent English boy sitting alone in the almost deserted dining room, round belly to the table's edge, humming to himself as he set to work, expertly with the spring-loaded escargot tongs, a spiked prong and an arsenal of fresh, crisp bread. I know I was happy. The snails came on their own ornate iron stand, complete with inbuilt meths burner, and as the flame guttered underneath, the generous slick of butter from the shells became so hot in each dimple I could fry my bread in it. This I did until all the bread and all the butter was gone. I paid and left, absolutely clear in my mind as to how I would be spending my evenings on this trip from now on. I returned the next day and the day after that, once with a friend. Until on the fourth night, the waiter didn't even bother to bring me the menu. He just presented me with the snails. I had emptied all the shells and was busy frying my bread when I noticed wisps of smoke lifting from the plate. I liked my bread really crisp, and on this evening had turned the flame up as high as it would go without for a moment thinking there might be consequences. Within seconds of the smoke appearing, the butter ignited, producing an impressive cone of flame at least a foot high, which burned enthusiastically on the ponds of dairy fat. I must have sat rigid with terror, because I have no memory of the waiter advancing upon me, only that he was suddenly at my side. This was a dangerous moment. The only thing that wasn't immediately inflammable in that restaurant was the cutlery, and the inferno on the table in front of me posed a real threat. The waiter didn't flinch. He opened the window next to me, letting in a sudden burst of frigid night air, picked up the burner from the base and heaved it out into the snow. He wiped his hands on his apron, closed the window, and we agreed it was time he brought me the bill. My adventure was over. Walking back to my own hotel that night, I was disappointed because I knew I couldn't return. Nevertheless, I was comforted by the knowledge that my family would be impressed by what had happened. It wouldn't have mattered to them if, in that one week, I had developed into a world champion downhill skier. It would have made no difference if I'd broken the slope record. They would have been pleased for me if I was pleased with myself. However, as far as my parents were concerned, any 11-year-old kid could learn to ski. But ordering snails in a restaurant, all by himself, that was a different matter entirely. This is how it had always been in my family. My parents were both children of the Depression, knew what it was to go without, and were not about to revisit the experience either on themselves or their kids, so ours was a house of plenty. I always said that culturally I was only a Jew by food, and it's true that there was no room at the Rainer house for ritual or faith. The Jewish god was far too picky an eater to be given space at our table. 
Forgo sausages and bacon? Reject shellfish and cheeseburgers all in the name of mumbo-jumbo? Don't be ridiculous. Yet there was, I think, something fundamentally Jewish about our way with food. The noisiness of the dinner table, the stomach-aching generosity, the deep comfort we sought from it. Food was what we did. Long before anybody had thought to initiate a debate on the importance of allowing small children into restaurants, my parents were taking all three of us out to eat on a regular basis, to Stone's Chop House near Piccadilly Circus, a grand old Italian called Giovanni's on the Charing Cross Road, and the great Chinese places in Chinatown or along Queensway near Hyde Park, where the chefs stood in the window hand-pulling noodles. By the time he was four, my brother was so good with chopsticks, the waiters often assumed he'd been raised in Hong Kong, and I had developed a taste for chicken with cashew nuts in yellow bean sauce and for deep-fried seaweed scattered with golden crumbs of dried scallop. Dishes that were rarely found outside of Chinatown back then, let alone outside of London.